The Kaplan Community Podcast is a platform for the wider Kaplan community to share ideas and insights that can guide us on our professional and academic development. It's easy to listen to, but tackle some hard-hitting issues. And we think it's a great way to appreciate diverse perspectives on life, learning, and careers. Hi, my name is Adam Murphy. I'm an academic head at Kaplan Business School, and I'm also a facilitator for Kaplan Professional and their 11 Leadership Program. Welcome, listeners, to the Kaplan Community Podcast. So we've been gathering perspectives from around Kaplan Business School and Kaplan ANZ about a host of issues. And today we've got Adam Murphy with us. How are you today, Adam? Fantastic. Here on yourself? I'm good. Thanks for being here. Welcome, Adam. It's good to see you again. So, Adam, because of your work with careers and academic internship program, I'd like to ask you some questions about leadership and career progression. So leadership doesn't come from the top of the organizational chart. It's not the board of directors or the senior executive team that lead the company. What directors and senior executives do is exercise authority, which means they use status to compel other people to perform. But authority and leadership aren't the same thing. I mean, we all know about political regimes ruled by dictators who live these obscenely lavish lifestyles while the country's citizens starve to death. They're kind of like a parasite on their own people. How is that leadership? And I've worked for organisations that were run just like that. Maybe you have too. When I was a young clerk, uh, a legal clerk, I worked for a law firm where the managing partner obviously cared about nothing more than his own financial gain, even at the expense of the firm's staff and the firm's clients. Again, that's not leadership, that's authority. Now, I'm not saying that your CEO is a tyrant just because they have authority. Authority itself isn't a bad thing. But when we think authority and leadership as being the same thing, we, we make a serious mistake. Here's why. The vast majority of us aren't company directors and aren't senior executives. So if we make the mistake of defining leadership too narrowly and as something that comes from the board and senior management, then we place ourselves outside of that definition and deny ourselves the opportunity to develop our own leadership capabilities and exercise our own leadership skills which can be kind of convenient in a way too. I mean, who needs the additional responsibility, right? Especially if I'm not being paid for it. And that's that's the key right there. How often do we tell ourselves, I'm not being paid to do that or I'm not being paid enough to do that? We tend to become so focused on what we're getting or what we're not getting from our companies. But we ask things like, what's in this for me? How well or how poorly are my needs being met? Do I deserve a better deal? And we completely miss what matters most. One of the fundamental principles we cover in the academic internships is that a relationship is not a place where you go to get something. It's a place where you go to give something. So when you say something to yourself like, I'm not paid enough to do that, or that's not my job, particularly when it comes to leadership responsibilities, what you're really saying is, I'm good with where I'm at. I don't require any further growth or professional development. I'm just going to chill right here. And so you don't grow. You limit yourself to the borders of your job description, and then you wonder why your career is stagnant. But growth is also an essential human need, and it's a need we all have. We all have the need to expand and evolve and get better. So when we choose not to grow, because that would mean doing something that we're not paid to do, then that need for growth is not met. And then we feel unfulfilled. And that's a terrible deal. I think that's a terrible deal. 
my company doesn't pay me enough to do anything more than I'm required to do. So I'll just limit my contribution and myself to only what I'm required to do and be unfulfilled. Fulfillment comes from growth and contribution. Promotions and pay rises and recognition awards, they're all nice and they're all satisfying. And they meet a different need that we all have, the need to feel special and the need to feel important. But the satisfaction quickly passes and you're left craving the next hit. Lasting fulfillment comes from growth and contribution because your work is not about what you get, it's about who you become. And why would you ever choose to limit who you could become? Leadership doesn't come from the top of the organisational chart, but it can come from you. It starts by making a better choice. It starts by choosing to grow and pushing yourself to develop leadership strengths and capabilities, no matter what your job title is or what your job description says. I was inspired about hearing the, the need for growth and contribution at work. So if anyone can develop leadership strengths and capabilities, regardless of their current position in the organization chart, where should they start? They should start by nailing their current role. Uh, you can't just abandon your job responsibilities to go focus on building your leadership skills. Uh, here's an approach that I've found helpful. Begin with the end in mind. It's the, the second habit in Stephen Coboy's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Have you read that one, Richard? Yes, I have. It's, got, it's on my bookshelf at the moment. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. So that second habit is really just about having a vision for where you want to go. And in the book, Stephen asks you to imagine your own funeral and what you would hope that the people would be saying about you and the kind of person that you were. So we can use that. Let's use that. Let's start with the end in mind. So what I want you to do is imagine that you're sitting in your interview for your next job. That can be our endpoint for your current job. And the interviewer asks you this question, what were you hired to do in your last job? And we all know that the question is a total setup because the very next question is going to be, what were your proudest accomplishments? And what the interviewer is really listening for is outcomes linked to expectations. Did you deliver on your promises? Were your achievements based on what you were actually hired to do? So to answer both questions optimally, we need to know our job description extremely well. And we have to become outstanding at delivering on those duties and responsibilities. Because another thing the interviewer is going to ask is for references. And we want our referees when they talk about us to brim with tremendous enthusiasm and obvious admiration. That's our standard. That's how outstanding we have to be at delivering on the responsibilities in our job description so that our managers, our team members, our direct reports and our clients brim with tremendous enthusiasm and obvious admiration. So here's an easy tool. Get your job description and turn it into a simple survey. And at the end of every week, do a quick audit on yourself. Ask yourself, how well did you deliver on each responsibility that week? So one of my responsibilities in my job description is about content development and delivery. I'm responsible for guiding the preparation of and proactively managing subjects, encouraging innovation in curriculum development and developing new subjects. So at the end of every week, I ask myself, what did you do this week to guide the preparation of and proactively manage subjects, encouraging innovation in curriculum development and developing new subjects? And some weeks I have something great to write, like this week I developed a brand new subject. 
Some weeks I have absolutely nothing to write. I didn't do anything that week to make good on that promise. So I follow this process for each and every responsibility in my job description. And then the very last question I ask myself is, what can you do next week to improve on this week's performance? And I focus on the responsibilities where I did nothing or I fell short. And I come up with ideas about what I could do next week to do a better job. And then I schedule the time in my calendar to go and make it happen. What about competition? I've always been very competitive. That's part of why I used to excel in sales-related roles. I was driven by things like being the best, challenging myself, and some leaders even foster competitiveness. Part of why I left that behind was actually I wanted to improve my collaboration. So my question is, in your perspective, is competitiveness a good thing? I think it is. I like competition. It keeps um, it keeps things interesting. It, it's a little bit on that theme of uh, we come alive when we have a, a target to work towards. And you might remember a movie about a horse called Seabiscuit. Did you ever see that, Kieran? Seabiscuit? Yeah, you. I know that one, yeah. Yeah. From memory, his character gets injured before the race in the climax of the film. And so he has to kind of guide and instruct the replacement rider on how to ride Seabiscuit. And he says, what, what you want to do is when the, the, the closest competitor to Seabiscuit, because Seabiscuit is, is a fantastic horse, when the next best horse comes up eye to eye with Seabiscuit, hold Seabiscuit right there. <laughs> don't, don't let Seabiscuit take off at that point. Let, let Seabiscuit feel the pain of being eyeballed by a competitor <laughs> to, to create the, the, mo- the motivation to just, you know, to, to really fire up the engines and, and, and rip it over the finish line. I think co- that competition managed in a, um, in a fun and enjoyable way, I think that can really do that for people. I think it, it can inspire them to, to dig deeper and to go further. So the first step is basically to become a leader, you have to know what your role is and excel, really excel in your current position, whatever that is. But what then? What comes next? Then we decide we're going to contribute beyond our job description. And this step is all about your company's strategic goals. You need to know what they are. So get a copy of your company's strategic plan. If your company doesn't have a strategic plan, then find out the old-fashioned way by talking with senior managers. What are the initiatives and the projects and the objectives that are critically important to your company? Now, this really matters because it's a wonderful thing to decide that you're going to contribute beyond your job description, but the last thing you want to do is put your hand up and let everyone know that you're ready to help out. You do that and everyone goes, great, here's all the crap I'd rather not do myself. And typically, The reason they'd rather not do those tasks is because they lack relevance to the company's strategic goals. Serving and being of service does not mean becoming servile. We want to contribute in a meaningful and impactful way, not volunteer to become somebody else's pet monkey. So what are your company's strategic goals? That's where you're going to focus your contribution. And hopefully the responsibilities in your job description already directly contribute to the achievement of at least some of those strategic goals. Start with those ones. What more could you be doing to help the company achieve those strategic goals? At Kaplan Business School, we have a strategic goal to become a leader in developing job-ready graduates. And one of the specific targets underpinning that goal 
is enrolling 100 students into the academic internship program each trimester. My job responsibilities directly contribute to the achievement of that target. So the question is, what more can I do to make that happen? Well, I can host workshops to promote the academic internship program. I can do things like coming on this podcast to talk about it and promote it more. I can make the academic internship experience so valuable for students that they spread the word to other students. What's our standard? Tremendous enthusiasm and obvious admiration. And then you're going to need to broaden your focus to include the strategic goals that aren't directly supported by your job responsibilities, but can be advanced by you contributing what you already do well. So KBS has another strategic goal to become a leader in the sustainable growth of student enrolments. Now, that's not an area that my job responsibilities directly impact. That's more the domain of the student recruitment team and the marketing team. But that doesn't mean I can't make a meaningful contribution by basically just doing what I already do, but in support of those other parts of the business. So I support student recruitment by facilitating workshops for our agent partners and their clients. And I support marketing by feeding up student success stories that can be posted on our website to attract new students. And it's when you start doing these kinds of things that you really begin to cultivate leadership capabilities by supporting other parts of the business to achieve strategic goals and objectives beyond your own job description. Adam, to recap, you've talked about a couple of steps. Step one is to excel in your current position. And step two is to support others to achieve strategic goals beyond your job description. So what comes next? The next step is the best one. It's, it's by far, by far the most fun. And I call it the ghost in the machine. It's the place where you have the greatest opportunity to grow professionally and have a meaningful and lasting impact on your company and its people. It's the step where you go hunting for any issues, problems, obstacles, or challenges anywhere in the business that are preventing the company from achieving its strategic goals. And when you find them, you resolve them. To do that, you need two things. You need trust and you need creativity. Here's why you need trust. There's a problem in the company. It's jeopardizing a strategic goal. Most people are oblivious to it because they're focused on themselves and what they do. But somebody in the company knows about it. Maybe it's just one person who knows. And they have their reasons for not speaking up about it. Perhaps speaking up would mean openly disagreeing with their manager. Or perhaps they don't believe speaking up would lead to the problem being fixed anyway. So what's the use? Whatever the reason is, they won't speak up. And so the problem remains unresolved. I mean, we've all been in situations where a work colleague has confided in us and told us about a problem just like this. Now, why did they tell you and nobody else? Well, they told you because they trusted you. So trust is the first thing you need. You need people all throughout the business to trust you enough to tell you about these kinds of problems. You probably already have several people that you work with who already do. You want to expand that network to as many people as you can in as many different parts of the business as you can. That's how you're going to find out about the problems that practically nobody else even knows exist. The second thing you need is creativity because you can't just write an email to the senior management explaining that the business has a problem. That would betray the trust of the person who told you about it and you depended on that trust to learn about the problem in the first place. So you need to get creative. You need to figure out a way to either solve the problem yourself or at least bring it to the attention of other people who can solve the problem without anyone ever realising what it is that you're really up to. 
And sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's just about recognising that one part of the business needs informational resources that another part of the business already has. So your job is to just bring the two parts together. Problem solved. But sometimes it's not easy. I've agonised over problems for weeks before coming up with a viable solution. But when you do and you implement it and then afterwards you catch up with the person and you ask them about that problem they told you about and then they tell you that somehow it just got resolved, you feel like you could fly. So I think some people might be wondering what is the point in solving problems if you don't get any credit or recognition for solving them, Adam? Because you know that you did. And you're not doing it for praise or merit badges or more stars on your chart anyway. You're doing it because by expanding the network of people who trust you and by applying your creativity to the resolution of complex problems of strategic significance, you're growing and developing the personal attributes that underpin leadership. People trust you with their problems and you can solve them. That's a leader. And any one of us, from the CEO down to the most junior admin person, can further develop the trust that people place in them and the creativity they apply to solving problems. And then when you are promoted or recruited to a position of authority, you won't need to rely so much on the authority because you'll already have the leadership skills. I'd say the act of getting attention itself is also something that's overlooked. So this was part of the book Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. It's a a very popular one, a great discussion of women in the workplace, but it does apply across demographics that not everyone wants to make waves or put their hands up, speak up at meetings. So, you know, if it's not always about waiting, it's not always just about performing and waiting, how should somebody get noticed? Is there a positive way for somebody to say, hey, look at me, I'm doing something good? There's definitely a positive way. The positive way is be so extraordinary at what you do that other people do the signaling for you that your co-workers go out of their way to sing your praises in meetings, that your clients or customers or students write emails or or put in phone calls to talk about uh, how thrilled they are with, with the contribution that you've made. If you're doing a fantastic job, you won't need to, to vouch for yourself. You're, the people around you will do that for you. Adam, we're really proud of our internship at Kaplan Business School. So how else can the Kaplan Business School Academic Internship Program shape the business leaders of tomorrow? You know, it's funny, Richard, there's there's always a couple of students who come to me at the beginning of their internship each trimester because they have a problem. Uh, And it's usually something like the internship company is only giving me basic things to do or my new manager doesn't explain things to me properly or I'm not really getting what I want from this internship. And my answer is always the same. My answer is always good. (laughs) Now, they don't like hearing that very much, but that's my answer because I know that the biggest problem we all have is that we think we shouldn't have any problems. Think about it. It Isn't your entire professional career really just a progression through level after level of problems of increasing complexity? Let's say you're studying for a degree. Well, you have problems to solve. You've got tuition fees workshop attendance, assessment performance. You have to figure all this out. Man, won't it be great when you finally get to graduate? So you solve all those problems and you graduate. What do you get? A new set 
of more complex problems. Now you need to find a job. Job hunting, networking, job applications, interviews, rejection. You have to figure all that out. Geez, won't it be great when I finally get a job? And then you solve all those problems and now you're employed. So now what do you get? A brand new set of even more complex problems and, and so it goes on. You get the, the picture. And I love that most people are really looking forward to their retirement. Why? What do they think is waiting for them there? Retirement is just more problems. There's always going to be problems to solve. So if you have problems in your internship or in your job, that's great. Let's figure out how to solve them now. So when they show up again at some point in your future career, which they always will, you'll know what to do. And students come to their internship with expectations about how their internship should be. And then sometimes they're disappointed by the problems that show up. The problems are the internship and leaders solve problems. So the internship teaches students how to embrace problems and deal with them like a leader instead of just trying to avoid them like everybody else. Adam, our internship program at Kaplan Business School is really authentic. It gives students both the ups and the downs of working in a job in Australia. But particularly when people are feeling a bit down, something's happened. Do you have any advice or any anecdotes that you use to make yourself feel better again, to pick yourself up? The story that I, I tend to use the most for those kinds of situations is a story that I call Diamond in the Pocket. In Western culture, the tradition is that the, the man buys the woman the engagement ring and then at the ceremony they exchange wedding rings and then at some point after the ceremony the, the new bride will say to her husband, now you need to get me an eternity ring, which is the, the third ring that none of us know about. I didn't know about it. And I'm like, what? I, I, I just bought you an engagement ring and a wedding ring. I only got a wedding ring. I only got the one. You're now going for your third. And, and so, you know, we were married for a couple of years and I was working at the time. It was actually when I, where I began my uh, teaching career. This is, this is going back, geez, 15 years or something. I thought to myself, geez, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great to surprise my wife with a $10,000 eternity ring, a $10,000 diamond ring? So I, de I designed this thing myself. I went to a, um, a premium jeweler in Sydney and designed this thing myself with their, with their guidance and they deliver it and this thing is, is special. Anyway, the other part of the story is uh, because it was the beginning of my teaching career, I, did, I had zero confidence in the classroom. I had this Russian student that sat at the front of every class on, on one of my Saturday classes and it really unnerved me because I knew at any point she could stand up and just start criticising me. And I didn't have the, the confidence or the, uh, the fortitude to be able to weather that kind of attack. And um, as fate would have it, on my very last day on that Saturday, uh, very last class with, um, with this student, I've got the ring in my pocket. And after this class, I'm headed straight for Sydney Airport and I'm meeting my wife and we're flying up to the Gold Coast together. She still knows nothing about the ring. I'm going to present it to, to her up there. It's going to be super romantic. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I've just got to get through one more class. <laughs> this student stands up in the middle of the whole thing and says, I don't like the way you teach. <laughs> but it wasn't my worst nightmares and fears because I had a diamond in my pocket. And I don't know where it came from, but I was able to say, Look, I really appreciate that feedback and everybody learns differently and has different preferences. 
particularly from their facilitators. So how about we perhaps have a conversation, a quick chat after the class. So perhaps I can talk about how in future, you know, the facilitators here can better serve your needs. <laughs> and her, her jaw just dropped because she was, she was obviously agitating for a confrontation and she didn't get one. And I'd, I'd been in plenty of confrontational situations in my career. I mean, I was a lawyer and I'd never before handled a confrontation like that with so much poise. And that frustrated me. I was like, well, if, if I'm capable of that, why can't I, why can't I produce that on demand? And I know it's not the ring. I know it's not the diamond in the pocket. That's just some minerals and a, a gem. That's not actually creating any meaningful difference in the way that I, um, that I respond to confrontation. And after a lot of uh, thinking about it, uh, I realised that it, I was right. It wasn't the ring. It had nothing to do with the ring. It was about me. It was about where I'd chosen to direct my focus. And my focus in that moment was on this beautiful surprise that I had spent 12 weeks orchestrating to present to my lovely wife. And that focus was so strong that not even uh, a potentially upsetting confrontation could cause me to deviate from that. So the, the key is, where is your focus? If, if something's upsetting you or something's going wrong or there's something bad that's happening to you, sure, you can focus on that. And if you do, you're going to feel terrible. But look around. What's bad and what's wrong is always available. So is what's right and what's good. There'll be, there'll be things that are also going on at exactly the same time that are good. The, the contribution that you make to the lives of other people, the love that you get from other people, uh, the companionship of your friends, the, the privileges that you have, uh, all of these things, if you just decide to shift your focus to that, you might not move from feeling down or feeling upset to elation, but you may move to gratitude. And gratitude is certainly a much better state to be in than feeling upset or feeling angry, or feeling frustrated. It's just a question of focus. Where, where you put your focus, that's going to impact your state. Can I ask you, Adam, how has your career evolved to become so involved in different aspects of the student's growth outside the classroom? Okay, I can really empathise with international students. I, um, I've, never, I've never myself travelled overseas for, for study or for work or anything like that. But when I graduated from the University of Sydney and I had my law qualification, I started out as a solicitor. The, the government made sweeping changes to uh, the legal profession. Personal injury was basically an uh, area of practice that just got demolished. And there were a lot of lawyers practicing personal injury. So there were a lot of lawyers who were now out of work. And I'm, and I'm entering this profession trying to seek employment. So I had a really hard time. Uh, securing a, a good job. And I had an ineffective strategy and I had limiting beliefs and I had a lot of self-doubt and I kind of bounced from one boring, menial, low-paid job to the next boring, menial, low-paid job. And it took me quite some time, a number of years, to figure out that if I was going to get this thing that I was calling a career on the right track, then I needed to give some serious thought to the strategies that I was using and also to the psychology that I was applying to, um, to my endeavours. And when I hear stories from international students about how they've come to Australia and the, 
the challenge of finding a meaningful job is more challenging than they anticipated, well, there's something in that that I can relate to. And there's some uh, things that I've worked out. There's some things that I've researched. There's some things that other people have, have taught me that I can bring together to help make that process so much easier and save so much time. That's where I seek to contribute to our students beyond the classroom because I know how heartbreaking and how difficult it can be, how soul-destroying, to try and find uh, a great job and and feel that there's something inadequate or lacking in yourself when there's not. It's just perhaps the way that you're thinking about things isn't optimal or perhaps the way that you're approaching them isn't the right way. Adam, I really like your analogy from Stephen Covey about remembering your contributions as though you were going to write them in your eulogy. So as a leader, what would be written in your eulogy? I think I'd like my eulogy to be about the contribution that I made to the lives of uh, of other people. One of my role models, one of my heroes is a person that not many people have even heard of. Uh, His name is, is Jonas Salk. And have you heard of him, Richard? I believe I have. That name, I'm not sure, but that name rings a bell. He was a man who, uh, in the 1950s, and and I'm currently speaking to two Americans, so correct me if I I don't get this right, but uh, I think that the time was the 1950s, and the the two biggest fears in American society at that time, the first one was uh, the potential for a nuclear exchange. Uh, with the USSR. Uh, That was something that had everyone paralysed with fear. The second biggest fear was polio, this disease that had this this sort of cyclical uh, cyclical appearance in society. And it was an insidious disease because it would target children and it would debilitate them. And and in some cases, it it would kill them. Uh, So there were these huge drives called penny drives to raise money to to try and find a cure. And there was one, this man, um, Jonas Salk, he was a, he was a scientist. He uh, applied his best to finding this cure, and he did. He, he found a cure. And there's, there's a, a video on YouTube of him being interviewed, and they asked him, who owns the patent on, um, on the cure? Nobody. Nobody owns the patent. Uh, could you patent the sun? He, he saw that what he'd done was of such benefit such value to society that he couldn't ask for money for it. In today's dollars term, this guy just created a billion dollars worth of value and then gave it away for free because he knew that that was the right thing to do, that, that he'd impact more lives with contribution that way. And in, in other parts, the developing parts of the world, we have new heroes like Bill Gates seeking to eradicate you know, polio from parts of Africa. That's, that's the kind of eulogy that I think would be appropriate for for a life that was well lived. Adam, we've reached the point of tyranny. Time has gone by. And Karen and I have to say goodbye now. It's been a pleasure. We've talked about the truths of leadership. We've talked about leadership strengths and capabilities and how we excel from our current position to the future. And then to a story about building confidence with a ring in your pocket. Thank you again, Adam. Thanks, Adam. It's been great. It's been, it's been wonderful. Thank you both so much. This, is, this has been a real joy. If you're feeling unwell or in need of help, reach out. Anyone in Australia can get immediate mental health support by calling the National Lifeline on 13 11 14. 
and Beyond Blue has great 24-7 support staff at 1-300-22-46-36. Kaplan employees can contact HR or access free counseling. KBS students have access to free confidential campus counselors, safety and support services such as Sonder. Reach out to your campus student experience team for friendly guidance on accessing these services.